Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we discuss the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, we both agreed our last podcast on delusional paranoia was pretty heavy and depressing, <laughs> so we promised ourselves and our listeners a lighter subject this time. Yeah, and I think we need to take the whole month of July off as well. Yeah, I think we both needed a mental break. So today's podcast is about why we name things after people and the consequences of doing that. It's briefly come up before, but we haven't had the time to really dig into it, and it doesn't have the weight of the future of democracy or the planet on its shoulders. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I've been interested in this topic actually since I was a kid, and it seemed like it became particularly relevant during our time as locally elected officials. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. Why in the <laughs> world would naming things interest any kid, let alone you? Well, I have to take you back 40 years when I was a teenager growing up in New Jersey. We were very excited that this new indoor sports arena was going to be built at the Meadowlands in northern New Jersey next to what was then Giant Stadium. And this arena would be the future home of the hockey team, which is the New Jersey Devils, and the basketball team, which is the New Jersey Nets. It was opened and it was called the Brendan Byrne Arena. And you may be thinking, who is Brendan Byrne? For those of us in New Jersey, we knew he was actually the sitting governor of the state at the time. So even as a teenager, I was a little more than disillusioned in politics as we appeared to be witnessing the audacity of a governor who would name an arena after himself, even though I later learned he was fairly instrumental in getting the project completed, but it still seemed a little off. <laughs> you know, that's, that's interesting. He uh, violated one of the commonly accepted rules of naming, being dead. Yeah. I guess so. But this instance was probably one of the more egregious examples of you know naming politics at work. But, you know, Seth, I think it's actually not all that rare. Yeah, yeah no, I, I get that. It feels like at every level of government, we seemingly have to name everything for a person, whether it's a building, an airport, a bridge, a park, a school, you know, go on and on. It's almost like a compulsion. After all, while it's true, names are a lot more convenient than saying something like, that big red building next to the small yellow building on the other <laughs> side of town. There are plenty of easier ways to identify stuff, like they do in many big cities that have a lot of geometrically laid out streets. You number them or assign them letters from the alphabet. But naming public things after people is so common, it's so accepted as a practice, that I think we don't even think about why we do it, let alone debate whether we should or how we should do it. <laughs> it's kind of like putting the fork on the left side of the plate. It's accepted practice, even though it really doesn't make much sense for most of the population. All right. So let's discuss why do we have this need to name things and, and does it make sense to do so in all circumstances? As you said, all level of government seem to do it, even in our little city of San Carlos. That, that's right. We faced this in the San Carlos School District. We had a need to build two new schools and, and lots of discussions about what to name them. And I remember that in the city of San Carlos, we recently named a small downtown park, which, by the way, had been in existence, so far as I know, unnamed for decades, and is on track to name a second downtown park once it's constructed. And of course, uh, the, you know, the larger level, the state, the federal level, you know, we see this all the time. For example, it seems like every building in D.C. is named after someone, <laughs> right? As well as seemingly most state and federal buildings across the country are also named. Although, in those cases, it's almost always someone who has passed away. Yes, but not always. You're familiar with the Norman Mineta Airport in San Jose. That was named in 2001 for Norman Mineta, who, by the way, actually just died this year. But he was a former mayor, congressman, a U.S. cabinet secretary. 
And he was very much alive in 2001, you know, when the airport was named after him. And he was actually still serving as secretary of transportation at the time. And, you know, now that I think about it, universities are also famous for naming everything in sight, particularly buildings, sections within buildings, athletic facilities, you name it. But I think there's another reason that that's done, which we'll get to in a bit. Yeah, there's a very important reason, right? But let's also remember, we talk a lot about U.S. politics on this podcast. This issue isn't unique to the U.S., There's facilities all over the world named after people. Rome has the Leonardo da Vinci Airport. Paris has the Charles de Gaulle Airport. I don't know. It seems like airports in particular are likely to be named after people, right? There's even an airport in California named after John Wayne, which is particularly funny because that was his stage name. Yeah, that's right. It probably wouldn't be as interesting if it was named like the Marion Morrison Airport. (laughs) I don't think so. And of course, many cities themselves are also named after people. As we've reminded ourselves in previous podcasts, you and I live in a city named for a Catholic saint. And lest we forget, the same thing generally happens with streets and roads. Right, of course. You know, see, every other street is Washington Street or Jefferson Street or Lincoln Street or, you know, what have you. Although I recall that the streets in the development where my brother Art bought his first home were purportedly named after all the women important to the developer, including his mistress. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, in general, on this podcast, talk about the naming of public facilities, like not private ones, right? That's because while the naming of private facilities is a purely private matter, naming a public facility is inherently a community choice. And we've talked about community choices a lot on this podcast, including, you know, the potential choice not to use a person's name. It's not like communities have to name libraries, buildings, what have you, after individuals. Calling a facility the San Carlos Adult Community Center, which in fact is its name, is perfectly reasonable for purposes of identification. It even contains a description of what the facility is for. Okay, Mark, since everybody seems to be doing it, clearly there must be a point. But I'm not sure I understand what that point is. Well, Seth, I think there are a number of goals a community achieves by assigning a name. First off, it's a way to honor someone. We like to celebrate our fellow citizens. There is a community benefit to doing that. It's also the case that the chosen people being honored are often associated with important groups. Think Martin Luther King Jr. or even Norman Mineta in his role as a Japanese-American icon. Naming an airport after him gave the airport's name a larger meaning. Yeah, I, I get that. And I also get that in some cases there may even be a connection between the person and the facility itself or the organization associated with the facility, like, for example, naming a dance studio for a famous dancer. Yeah, that's true. And names can also be symbolic, though, representing a community's stance on issues and values. For example, San Francisco named a new airport terminal after Harvey Milk. The goal was clearly not just to honor a pioneering gay civil rights leader, but also to use it as a platform to educate people on that civil rights movement. Yeah, and I, of course, have no problem with that educational goal, right? And I agree that creating a teaching moment is generally a good thing, but... We can't ignore that other communities may use the same process for less noble purposes. Not only will many others not name anything after Harvey Milk simply because he was gay, but we also create this permission structure for other communities to name their airport terminals after Robert E. Lee or even like a Roger Stone or, you know, someone like that. (laughs) Although I doubt either of those things will happen in the Bay Area anytime soon. For sure. (laughs) I get that, Seth. But to me, that's a sign of the fact there's never any guarantee that any particular community decision is, quote unquote, right in some kind of abstract or global sense for all time. Yeah, of course. You know, it's funny. It reminds me that there actually are cases where communities make naming decisions 
like ingest or make it a political point. I recall speaking of the Bay Area, right in San Francisco, there was a ballot measure in 2008 to rename a sewage plant after George <laughs> W. Bush. <laughs> Obviously, that was done for a particular purpose. That, by the way, that measure failed. <laughs> but there actually is a John Oliver, quote unquote, memorial sewer plant in Danbury, Connecticut, yeah, that the right. town named after the comedian since he made fun of the town on his TV show. Right, right. John Oliver, who, to be clear, is not dead, actively pushed the idea himself. He even donated to local charities as part of the renaming. <laughs> Proving once again the old adage of there ain't no such thing as bad publicity. I, I see where you're going as to why communities see benefits in naming. But I still it still gnaws on me because I think there are serious problems with naming public facilities. And I think of those in three separate categories. And I want to talk about each of those. One is the honor itself. Two is the process for choosing someone for that honor. And the third is what I'll call potential buyer's remorse that may happen in the future. So let, let's go right into the first one. Honoring someone by naming something after them is effectively equivalent to anointing them in some officially sanctioned way, right? That's in part true because the naming opportunities are relatively scarce. If we had a lot of things to name, the value and the impact of each naming would be a lot less. Sure. You know, like when you see plaques within parks where people can purchase the honor for a loved one, the very abundance of those, you know, makes any individual honor much less significant. Although collectively, they highlight just how important the park is to the community at large, because no one would purchase the plaques if they didn't appreciate in some fashion the park. Right. But but in your example, when there's only one school or one airport, you know, and they're built every 50 years or something right in any given community, it's pretty rare honor. Yes, but I'm not sure the anointment itself, if there is such a word, is a problem. Few political choices of any kind please everyone. That's why I often say choices aren't good. They're at least bad. So long as enough, whatever that means, of the community want to bestow the honor, I guess I don't really see the anointment as a problem. Yeah, but the question will always exist about whether one person is great enough to deserve such an honor, right? Particularly given that, like every one of us, they're imperfect human beings. Good point. But this problem strikes me as another example of the limitations of what I call binary categorizations. We subconsciously tend to assume you're either worthy of anointment or not, which, like most binary categorizations, doesn't really map well to the complex world we live in. Maybe if we just accepted that even our saints and heroes have feats of clay, we wouldn't run into problems with naming stuff after people. Perhaps, but I would also make the argument that giving this singular honor can also serve to ignore and exclude others that may be equally deserving, and we tend to forget them afterwards. Uh, so let me just go right into the second issue, which I think is even a little more interesting, which is the inherently difficult process of deciding on a person for whom something will be named. In my recollection, when names get assigned, all the communities that you and I are familiar with follow one of two choices. They either pick an historical figure or pick someone who has a connection to the community itself where the facility is located. So in the first case, picking a historically famous person, right? Isn't that just an exercise in picking some favorite figure in history, right? It's generally unconnected to the nature of the facility itself. <laughs> Which is why there are a lot of Washington schools, even though, to the best of my knowledge, he never played a formal educational role. And I think people just see an advantage in picking historical figures because it feels safe. Who's going to argue with picking, you know, Nelson Mandela or, you know, MLK or Gandhi or Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, you know, any of those guys? Yeah, but as we've seen lately, even people who truly played outsized and significant roles in history are anything but perfect. 
or they end up being viewed differently as history marches on or as communities evolve. Winston Churchill is a great example. He was quite famous for what he did during World War II, but everyone politely ignores his second stint as prime minister in the 1950s and his role in attempting to suppress Indian and Pakistani independence. Well, I think you're making you know my point for me, which is uh, communities perceive them as safe choices when maybe they're not. So that's the one category of famous person choice, right? And the other one that you mentioned is picking a locally connected person. Those face different challenges, but challenges too. That's true. And that selection process on the local level is often, as you said, just a group of community leaders lobbying for and or picking their favorite member of the community. You know, and as a result, those discussions can cause, I think, community friction for no particular benefit. And this is often a bigger risk for local communities like ours than it would be, say, on the national stage, because local honorees are more subject to the specific whims of those in charge. So like when we were in charge, if we just really had a particular person we wanted to push, we had outside power to do that. And these honorees would be less likely to have this sort of broad-based appreciation and not subject to the same degree of historical and media evaluation as those whose role was played out on a state or national or global stage. It's one of the reasons I suspect that many decision makers on any level, including the local one, use the only name stuff after dead people rule. That allows for potentially more thorough review by the community and also reduces the risk of embarrassing things coming to light after the naming simply because the person is already gone. Sure, and I get that, but that rule also creates its own oddities, like naming something after someone like who died recently. I would never say, oh, it's good luck that they died when they did, <laughs> but there is some level of irony that people are more likely to get something named after them if they die at a very specific time. Okay, so now let's go on to that third bucket of issues. A name is sticky and not easily changed because if we've explored before, human beings tend to dislike and oppose change, right, of any kind. But why do you think that's important? Well, because nothing can completely eliminate the risk of negative new information coming to light, whether they're dead or not at the time of naming. When you assign a name, you could never be sure you know all there is to know about the person you're honoring. That's a fair point. Plus, now that I think about it, times do change. Today's hero can become, if not tomorrow's villain, substantially less heroic as values shift. Or maybe because the makeup and nature of the community itself changes over time. I forget who said it, but history is always viewed through the lens of the present. And as the present evolves, so does history. If not the facts, then at least our interpretation of those facts. Right, and of course, honoring Confederate leaders is a recent example of this. The community that approved the names was vastly different from the community using the names today. I think we also need to recognize, too, though, that many of the people who likely would have objected back during the naming process to the original names were explicitly disenfranchised when those names were picked. And let us not forget, there are plenty of non-political examples where we see people in a different light later. Let's just take Bill Cosby as a sort of exaggerated example. I mean, his name has been on schools <laughs> or, or facilities within schools. Then we later found out he was involved in a number of sexual assault cases. I mean, talk about buyer's remorse. A consequence of naming is that there will inevitably be, and are in fact today, many public assets named after historical figures we're not exactly proud of anymore. Which brings me back to my original point and my befuddlement as to why we bother naming in the first place. But Seth, I think part of the reason you're more opposed to how we name public things than I am has to do with how you assess the value to a community of assigning the name. Sure. I mean, like any decision, we have to weigh the benefits and the cost, right? And decide in our own minds or as a community in which way does naming things after people tip the scales one way or the other. 
For me, bottom line, I come down on the side of thinking that naming is a proper discussion for a community and its elected representatives to have, provided they discuss the trade-offs. Well, I'm still not a big fan. I see this as just a political decision, but unlike hopefully most political decisions, these don't actually serve to benefit anyone other than people's egos or some sense of doing something. Almost every time, the naming itself has no impact on the institution's mission. So therefore, it's a political exercise with lots of downside and little upside, one that can distract communities away from discussing real issues. And particularly in the case of schools and local institutions, I mean, naming a facility after a person feels like, to me, an exercise of exclusion and not inclusion, as it should be. I think you're being a little harsh on communities and their desire to recognize individuals who mean or meant something to them. People like to look up to individuals who stood up for something they, as individuals, believe in. It serves as a way, if nothing else, of reminding everyone, hey, try and live your life more like that, which doesn't mean everyone agrees with the elevation. Uh, Sure, but I guess I'm arguing that this is not actually what we're doing as communities, right? It's not like every naming process goes through some thoroughly studied process to determine who is the singularly best person to put up as a role model. So I said it just again comes back to politics. Well, except every decision a community makes is political, at least under our system of representative democracy. Naming things is no different in that sense from passing a budget to pay civil servants to accomplish community goals. I guess I would just differ on whether naming accomplishes any significant goals like these other government actions you mentioned. Yeah, but I can't think of any government action I've ever been involved in when there wasn't at least someone who thought that there was no significant goal being accomplished. (laughs) Maybe. But I do agree that picking a name for a facility is exclusionary because it's one name to a facility. But that type of exclusiveness is inherent in anything that selects one thing from a group of things. Even democratic elections are exclusionary under that definition because we deny someone who may have earned just a few votes less than the winner a seat at the decision-making table. Like everything else in public life, I think it's more a matter of striking the least bad balance. Yeah, that's fine. I think we just see the balance a little differently here. Maybe we need to see if calling one of our local schools the Seth Rosenblatt Institute of Critical Thinking would change your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I hope not. Well, let me give you an example on a related topic that's been more in the news lately, and that's statues. The process for putting up statues of people has a similar dynamic to naming facilities, right? Both the benefits and the risk. But the big difference is that facilities that are named otherwise have a function. The building does something. The airport does something. A statue is a named honor that really has no other function other than to do the honoring. I mean, although I I appreciate that in some examples, it could potentially have an educational value. Unfortunately, statues can also be a way to rewrite history. The Confederates certainly did that after the Civil War. But again, elevating someone whose approach to at least some aspects of life you believe to be desirable of emulating can be a significant positive, in my opinion, for a community. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel better about yourself or your community, so long as you respect everyone, which is where I'd argue the heirs of the Confederacy fell right down. Well, and the Confederacy one is a great example of how statues are often put up with some corrupt or at least politically biased intent, and (laughs) can also fundamentally be arbitrary and, and maybe should be transitory. Seth, we referenced a couple of examples from our local community. Let's dive into those in more depth to illustrate how naming plays out on the local level. Yes, we had brought up the fact that some years ago, our school district was faced with a dramatically growing enrollment. And the community passed a bond measure to actually build new schools. So we decided to build these two new schools. And of course, during the construction process, the issue arose of what will we name these schools? 
And as I recall, since none of the current schools were named after people, there already was some form of precedent. But despite that, a number of community members started floating the idea that we should name the new schools after people who somehow contributed a lot to the community or to the school district specifically. That's a good example of how, as we mentioned, bestowing names is almost always a rare event, one in a generation, if that often. But if anything, I mean, through our time in public office, Mark, I think we both learned to appreciate how many thousands of people it took to make our schools and our students successful. I mean, it really does take that proverbial village. So given that context, I was always struggling with, even if we wanted to do this, how could we honor just one person? (laughs) Easily. It's done and actually accepted by most communities all the time. The problem comes in people using the naming to conclude that only that person played a significant role. Is that a failure of naming stuff or a failure in critical thinking by community members? I mean, I you know, couldn't really accept that notion. So we really pushed hard on this discussion. And after a lot of that discussion and debate, good news in my mind was the school board voted that the schools or frankly, any significant facilities within the schools could not be named after individuals. So you're living or dead. And we had some community task forces working to suggest names that, you know, fell within that policy. And in my mind, I think that system worked. I mean, everyone understood how it was going to play out. There was very little controversy about something that really didn't have the meaning that many people had attributed to it. And I would also argue there was a secondary benefit in having this policy in that it implemented a discipline when by sort of purely the coincidence of timing, and this happened in real life, right? A community member passed away while we were building one of the new schools. That was a tragic situation and emotions were high, but we were able to navigate that issue without creating offense or tension in the community on whether or not to name a facility in this new school after this person. I agree that what you guys came up with was a perfectly reasonable outcome because it was supported by the community. But I'd be willing to bet that if there was a large swath of community members who wanted the schools named after people and they got themselves organized enough, the policy would have been different and also would have been reasonable. You know, I don't know, Mark. I felt very strongly about this one, so I didn't think I was going to succumb to public pressure if it had existed, but I guess we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I can count on the fact that you would never succumb to public pressure, but (laughs) having worked with you. But that's why we generally require these kind of decisions to be made by legislative bodies because they have more than one person on them, and that's to increase the chance of other viewpoints being considered. Yeah, granted. But I considered this a great example of our being leaders, right? We clearly stated the case of why we should act a certain way, and then we did it. And I think in a reasonable community like ours, no one really thought twice about it after we stated that case. But I'm guessing if we allowed naming and started that process, we would have created headaches and disappointments for a lot of people with fundamentally no improvement in outcomes in education for our students, which is fundamentally our only purpose anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. On the other hand, I suspect a different outcome might have resulted, controversy followed by acceptance, precisely because assigning a name doesn't actually do all that much, as you were just saying. You know, the city council, representing basically the same reasonable community, took the opposite approach in naming two downtown parks. It decided to name them after people viewed as particularly important to the San Carlos community. Mark, wasn't one of those parks named after someone who had served as a local police officer for many years, right? And then he was a police volunteer in his retirement? Yes, that's exactly right. And there was little opposition to that naming. In fact, I don't really remember any opposition. Admittedly, it probably helped that the park had been in existence for a long time, was pretty small, and didn't impinge on day-to-day public consciousness like a park that you played weekly youth softball or soccer games in would do. 
And although I'm sure he was a great guy, I had only met him once, but but, you know, I didn't know him very well. But and I'm sure he contributed a lot to the community. To me, the decision still smacked of arbitrariness and frankly, just politicians trying to make themselves feel better. Right. It really hasn't helped the community in any way. That said, I wasn't that excited about it to even make a comment at a public meeting, which maybe is why it seemed like it was just accepted. I get that. But the naming didn't and hasn't harm the community in any way I can see either. So in that sense, it's a neutral decision and hence almost automatically a, quote, least bad, unquote, one. It's less important that it didn't do anything good than it didn't apparently offend anyone. Yeah, I mean, there may have been no harm, but I do worry about the precedent. What happens when the next well-known community member passes away? Is it going to be a requirement to do something then? Well, Seth, you see, that's just your conservative side coming out, wanting to make sure that the future (laughs) mimics the past or doesn't mimic an adverse past. The other park will be named, unless the council changes its mind, after a private commercial property owner who contributed a lot of money to local philanthropic causes and who played a significant role in shaping our downtown, in part by not always seeking to maximize his rental income. Sure, but how many other people played similar roles and will not be recognized with the park? I mean, not to mention, Mark, that I understand the plan is it to, to name it after this man and his first wife, ignoring the role of, I guess, his second wife had in the actual philanthropy. So it feels like the city is getting involved in effectively what is a family dispute. And like, why should it do that? (laughs) That's a fair point. Including only his first wife was the suggestion of his adult children to honor their mother. But as a result, I mean, taking your argument into account, I could see the council opting not to do that so as not to be exclusionary. But I think you're missing the potential value from naming the park or really any park. By highlighting this gentleman's values and what he did for the community, San Carlos is advocating for more people to do similar things, which would benefit the community. Naming things can provide a teaching moment by which we communicate something about our values to the people who come after us. Yeah, the arbitrariness of the naming thing still bothers me. I mean, granted, some decisions are arbitrary because there's no other way to manage them, and often there's a benefit to having it. Whereas in this case, we're doing something arbitrary because it's making someone feel good, and I doubt the impact of sort of this educational value that you talk about. So to me, it's sort of a tautological externality that we discussed in the uh, Makes Me Unhappy episode, having sort of no really significant benefit from it. I see that. But I'd argue what you're discounting, and you're welcome to discount it that way, is that the community may want to feel better about something by highlighting individuals whose community behaviors are deemed admirable and worthy of emulation. It is an externality, but I don't think it's necessarily tautological. You know, Mark, the example you gave of the local developer makes me think we need to have a discussion about one other part of this issue, because there is a case where I'm sure we both agree that the externality clearly isn't tautological. So let's do a little detour about whether we think money should play a role in naming public facilities. And I think specifically that when we were discussing the naming issue for San Carlos schools, the question did come up in our discussions that what if someone donated a lot of money to name a school or facility after someone? (laughs) I suspect that was a bit of a purely intellectual discussion because I would be shocked if that was a likely thing that might happen. (laughs) Yeah. But of course, it does happen at the university level all the time. And it also happens at hospitals, which are often tied to universities. So the fundamental question is, irrespective of our discussion earlier about naming, should there be exception in this case for donors, for money? It almost seems crass, but if we're looking at the cost-benefit analysis, this is different than the scenarios we've discussed so far. 
This is a case where, even by your definition, Seth, the naming isn't meaningless. It's tied to a real benefit to students. Yeah, I agree. If someone donates a ton of money to build a particular facility for a school, but the condition of that donation is naming rights, then that's a very different and much better trade-off than our earlier examples. It's not an arbitrary political decision in that case. But I think it still has problems. It can end up whitewashing someone's reputation effectively as a way to bolster their own PR. I mean, think Mark Zuckerberg. Or rewrite history, college buildings being named after white supremacists. Or even potentially gain sympathy as they may be vulnerable to legal issues, like the Sackler family tried to do all over New York and various other cities. Yeah, for sure. But back to the local level, I mean, we like you mentioned, we never faced this particular issue because no one was going to donate that kind of money to the San Carlos School District. But we did face an analogous dilemma on a smaller scale. I mean, there were a number of occasions where we received offers from potential local donors where they wanted to donate money to create a very specific program, even if they didn't want their name attached to it. I think our staff handled most of those cases pretty well, and they were successful in negotiating with the donor to fund uh, a program that the educational experts of the district wanted to have anyway, or wanted to launch or expand anyway. So that way, the donor's money and what they wanted to do was consistent with the larger organization's mission. But that took some work. Oh, hey, there's nothing wrong with negotiating the terms of a donation. But I recall at least one time where the district actually refused a donation because the donor insisted the money go towards something our educators didn't think was appropriate or would have caused a material inequity in the programs across our schools. Well, I agree that the school district actually made the right decision in that particular case of turning down the donation. But let's now delve deeper into what happens with potential problems with naming that only appear obvious in hindsight sometime later. The first, we discuss this with statues, right, is that sometimes naming is birthed not just from political arbitrariness or laziness. I mean, sometimes naming is a concerted effort to shape how history is written, often with a very biased viewpoint or in a corrupt way. And of course, this was done relentlessly with Confederate generals and leaders. Well, while I despise honoring Confederate leaders, I suspect the result really derived from local governments building on a corrupt system that denied political power to people of color, honoring people who had tried, fortunately for the rest of us unsuccessfully, to uphold principles that were important to the few people who were allowed to make the decisions. The problem was, and is, that those values that were being quote-unquote honored were themselves unworthy and evil. There's a second problem, you know, the second down-the-road problem, if you will, and this one's been equally in the news lately, right? Is It's that buyer's remorse that we reference, that institutions, particularly schools, have had in the names of their facilities, right? And this can happen either through viewing someone differently through a historical lens, like you referenced, and that could be whether it's Confederate generals or slaveholders or what have you, or because information is later uncovered about a person after something is named. It's the Bill Cosby example. But I'd argue that those effects are, quote, merely, unquote, the result of the times they are changing. It's foolish to think we'll ever know everything there is to know about someone at any given point in time. In capitalist terms, we will never have perfect information. But just like with capitalism, things will still generally be okay if we get close enough. Yeah, unfortunately, as we said, names are sticky. We've learned over the last decade, it takes so much energy to discuss what to do when we regret that we've named something after someone. So why do it in the first place? Because we think it's the right thing to do at the time. The fact we may feel differently or our descendants may feel differently in the future is not really today's issue. I think this is another example of the inherent problems of conservatism as a philosophy. When there's a reasonable chance the future will be different from the past, which is almost always the case, 
it's nuts to require tomorrow to look like yesterday, whether you're talking about tax policy, putting up statues, or naming buildings. But wouldn't that argue that we should at least be cautious about making what are effectively permanent decisions, knowing that things will change in the future? <laughs> well, Seth, as I think I've shared with you, I used to have to uh, constantly remind my colleagues on the city council that none of our decisions were permanent. They lasted only up until the time a majority of us decided to do something else. But I agree with you that this discussion leads us directly to what should we do about these naming issues, which are going to occur when they occur down the road. Right. And it's happened a lot recently, right? Particularly at the university level or hundreds of buildings changing names of historical figures or even early donors or founders of a school because of the obviousness of their moral or legal failings, shall we say. Yeah. You know, another example of that, which Barbara pointed out to me on one of our recent trips to New York, is that a lot of museums have actually gone to the trouble of, I don't know how they do it, chiseling out the Sackler name from, from, from their right. donor walls, which is, you know, that's kind of like a pretty dramatic step to take. It's more complicated than the public arena when the names involve historical figures that may have been incredibly accomplished and important for our country or community, but were indeed imperfect and existed in a context very different from today's context. Sure. I mean, the classic example, of course, is George Washington. I mean, he was indeed a slave owner, but also our country wouldn't have existed without him. I like to point out that Ulysses S. Grant is another example. He literally saved the nation and worked very hard to end discrimination against blacks. But a couple of scandals during his time as president and the diligent efforts of former Confederates to rewrite history have consigned him to oblivion in the popular mind. In the Toad Rage episode we had, we also briefly discussed the recent issue with the San Francisco School District and their discussion around renaming 44 schools, including those that had already previously been named, including Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and even one for Dianne Feinstein. We argued then that, particularly as an educational organization, the school district should have focused on the teaching moment, meaning do the things that teach students the good and bad about our historical figures, rather than engaging in what was clearly a very painful community discussion about potentially renaming schools, which they didn't end up doing, and in fact, a few school board members were recalled as a result of that whole effort. Yeah, and this San Francisco example explains, in my mind, why it's so practically tough to undo naming, and hence it argues for being very cautious in doing it in the first place. But if they had a school named for Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee, I bet that would change the calculus. No pun intended? Yes, no pun intended. <laughs> well, that's the problem with gray areas. I mean, everyone has a different view of their borders. Not naming things because there are likely to be negative consequences to deal with down the road reminds me of something my dad once told me. He said, Mark, there are two things in life that it's never the right time to do. Get married and buy a house. You just take your best <laughs> shot and do it and trust in your ability to work out the problems when they come up. I think that's an important aspect of all public decision making, which, as we've explored in other podcasts, is inherently very difficult to subject to any kind of quantitative analysis. You know, Mark, I appreciate your dad's wisdom. You know, once again, I would argue that getting married and buying a house have tremendous potential benefits. But even if there were some value in honoring someone by naming a facility, the value of that pales in comparison to the things he was talking about. One would hope so. <laughs> the challenge, I think, comes from the unspoken belief that naming decisions should be good forever. They're not, just like any decision isn't good forever. But that's a particular problem in American culture and politics, which tends to frown on revisiting past decisions as a sign of weakness. 
You know, Seth, when we teed up this topic, I thought it was going to be quick and light because it had no real meat, no real <laughs> substance. Boy, was I wrong. Yeah, there you go. I'm sorry for that. And let me be clear, Mark, I'm under no illusion that government institutions will stop naming things after people. I mean, my opinion is clearly in the extreme minority here. My wife likes to point that out to me. But it's worth discussing this topic as I think policymakers should at least not enter into these decisions in at least a reflexive or a perfunctory manner, but rather put at least a little thought into the purpose of naming as well as the potential downsides now as well as in the future. Even though clearly you and I have somewhat different views on this subject, I do agree with you that there are some practical takeaways and lessons that maybe we can apply to public decisions regarding naming. Starting with the local level, as we talked about, I don't think everything we did in the San Carlos School District was perfect, but I do think we wound up handling this particular issue pretty well, and the process turned what could have been a very contentious debate into a fairly positive one. And essentially what you mean by that, I think, is that local governments ought to think long and hard before they name facilities after people. It can both save you a lot of headaches in the current process and in the future. Yeah, and it instills a discipline in the organization that it isn't forced to react when someone dies or a few vocal people push for something that's frankly just in their own interest. All of this could be boiled down, I think, to make good decisions, which, given how complex our communities are, really generally means make least bad decisions. I also think there's a simple change we could make when we assign names that would address many of the concerns we've raised. Put a sunset clause on the name, requiring the community to reevaluate its choice after a reasonable period of time, say 10 years, 15 years, something like that. Yeah, I like that idea. If the choice still stands, it could be re-upped. If new negative information comes to light, okay, it could be dealt with. And if the community finds it wants to honor someone else, great. One of the attractions of this is that there are plenty of precedents for it. For example, California requires every city's general plan, its constitution essentially, to be redone every decade or so, simply because they know things change. And for those times that institutions do decide to name something after someone, right, whether they've paid for that privilege or not, I think they need to think about their own future option value. Like, and in some cases, I know universities put in morality clauses to give them the ability to remove the name in the future. Although these are not without problems, as there's definitely gray areas there too, but I still think those would definitely help. Communities would also be better served by honoring someone, not by just assigning his or her name to something, but by explicitly honoring what it is that that person did or what their values were, which made them worthy of recognition. That's often, but not always done with plaques and information displays in a park or on a building. Yeah, I mean, I like that, but I think I'd even go a step further, which is if you must name something, you need to use it as a teaching moment. That can include both positive and negative aspects about the person being honored, as well as an honest review of all the issues surrounding their life. I think this is particularly true for schools, whose mission it is to educate. I think for schools, but I think, frankly, your idea would be great for any kind of public naming because it would inherently factor in this notion of the balancing factor and the recognition that nobody's perfect, but that's okay. We still have things that we want to value that we each do. There's also something else that we shouldn't ignore, which seems to come up pretty often as an action item in almost every one of our podcasts. Teach our children and encourage and remind the adults among us to think critically, because many of the challenges that arise from naming things are only challenges when they run into a failure to recognize that times change, knowledge expands, and sometimes values follow suit. Well, Mark, we always seem to end on critical thinking skills, so I do like that. I do appreciate your indulging me on a topic that has bugged me since I was a teenager. <laughs> and it's also fun to find a discussion where we disagree a little more than we have had on our previous podcasts. 
I agree. This was a lot of fun, particularly because the subject wasn't about the potential death of democracy or the destruction of our planet. I really liked how it fell squarely into how politics intersects with psychology and history. Yeah, and it's an issue that doesn't get a lot of attention. It just fell in our laps because of the circumstances we had in San Carlos. Well, Seth, thanks a lot for a fun discussion. Although I think we probably ought to go back to something a little deeper on our next one. Oh, my goodness. Well... (laughs) Thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Clearly stating up front, though, that for enough money, we'd happily let you name this podcast. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.